Good evening. I appreciate the thoughts you shared, Larry. Also, I am appreciative of your prayers because I am supposed to, when I was asked to give this topic, cram four hours of class material from Heritage into 50 minutes here. So, <laughs> we will do our best. But what is an Anabaptist? The, when you think about Anabaptism, that includes Anabaptists. There's the people involved in a ism, is an ist. So what is an Anabaptist? We all go to a Mennonite church, but we can't say who we are. Huh, interesting. What's an Anabaptist? And that is the, the cusp of the original meaning of the word. It was rebaptizer. It's one of those. And that term rebaptizer had a negative connotation. It wasn't a good connotation. It was, it was known to be, oh, it's one of them. Because in Catholic history, there had been groups that have ebbed and flowed through the Catholic Church that taught a believer's baptism. And they were rapidly shut down. And we're not going to talk about them. But that was about a... 900-year period of revivals and small little groups here and there. But the Reformation, which really started with the Protestant Reformation, that was called the Magisterial Reformation. I don't know if you ever heard that term. That's kind of a term that's come about here in the last number of years. But Anabaptists came out of the Radical Reformation. And Anabaptists came out of the Protestant Reformation because they felt that certain of the Protestant Reformers weren't taking things the biblical route and doing it enough. Um, and we'll look at some of them. But an Anabaptist doesn't include just us as Southeastern Mennonites. What are other groups that are under that umbrella of Anabaptists? Hutterites. Hutterites, yeah. Quakers. Not quite. <laughs> they would have come out of the English uh, Reformation period and the, the kind of the Baptist church, but very close ties to. Um, Anabaptists. The other two are Brethren and Amish. There we go. <laughs> um, that's the four groups mainly that are in an Anabaptist umbrella is Mennonites. Amish came from the Mennonites, a schism and a split over uh, worldliness and, and the ban. How, how heavy handed do you apply excommunication? And then we have the Brethren and the Hutterites. Hutterites would have come about very close to the formation of the Anabaptists um, simply because of, again, sharing of goods and also the ban. But Anabaptists were not favored. You had at this time going on in European history, you had the Protestant Reformation, which would basically be led by Martin Luther. And what did he do? Where He's famous for something couple things, but what was the thing that he did that kind of set the spark that started the Reformation? Yep. He nailed his 95 theses on the Wittenberg church door. And that kind of started, and the, the, some would say the hammer heard around the world type of phrases, but that's what started the Reformation and started people realizing, oh, wait a minute, the Catholic Church doesn't really have the authority on these issues because... One other thing that Luther did was he translated the Bible into German 
And that was made possible because of someone else who made an invention a few decades before. What was that invention? Yeah, Johannes Gutenberg, the printing press. The printing press enabled large groups of people to be able to read God's word. It had never happened before. Well, for that period of history, it hadn't happened. You were before, you were at the mercy of scribes and monasteries and writing out the different translations, and it was mainly in Latin, because that's what the, the priests would read, and that was the educated way to read the Bible. The, the peasants, you and me, everyday low-life people, we didn't get to read the Bible. We were at the mercy of what the priest would tell us. And with the advent of the printing press, and then German translation, English translation, the Bible was being produced to where people could actually read it, and they were seeing glaring discrepancies in what this said to what was being practiced. And that's what really started the Protestant Reformation with mass, the idea of communion, and it was in the Catholic theology, it had become what's known as transubstantiation, that basically the bread and the wine, somewhere between the plate and the cup in your mouth became the body of, and the blood of Christ. And we know that's not real, it's, it's emblems. But when they got into scripture, they started realizing that's, that's not there. And also infant baptism. Those were the two big things that got Ulrich Zwingli. And Ulrich Zwingli was the forerunner of the Reformed Church. How many of you know John MacArthur? He's a Protestant preacher. He's from a Reformed denomination. That's somebody in our day that's still in that type of vein of, of preaching. But what happened was Ulrich Zwingli, and it was the culture then, you have city-states that had the power over the local church. And I'm sure some of this is probably things you've heard, but I need to lay some groundwork. But what these city-states would do is they would have a large sway and power over the church. And Ulrich Zwingli didn't want to step outside of that because he was a little bit fearful of his own movement, his own life, and his own power. He wanted to have the blessing of the magistrates of Zurich in Switzerland. And that kind of came to a head when some of his students, Conrad Grebel, Felix Mons, some others, that they were really pressuring him, we need to be doing this more biblical. And, well, we, we will, we will. And it kind of came to a head in January of 1525, where they had, a, a, they had one before, but then they had a second debate, a dispensation. And what that basically came down to in long and short is the city council sided with Ulrich Zwingli and said, infant baptism is okay. And you have eight days to fall in line. And they met in Felix Mons's parents' house, and they realized this was not where they wanted to be. And so they had a, a decision to make. And there was about 15 or so, probably a little more recorded with you figure some children or, or wives, but... But in January 21st of 1525, that's when you could really kind of see the birth, if you will, of the Anabaptist movement. Um, for, for my own opinion and side note, um, I think it probably started before that. There was some, at the time, there was three different areas, really, that had Anabaptist uh, leanings and a fire being built there in that former revival. We know Switzerland. What were two other areas that were going on with an Anabaptist movement? We know Switzerland. That's the one we think of. Conrad Grebel, Felix Mons, George Blarick. What were the other two locations? 
Netherlands. Netherlands would have been right about now, but we think of Menno Simons, he'd have been a little bit after these other guys in Switzerland. But the Reformation in the Netherlands was going on simultaneously with Switzerland. Where's another place? Most of your ancestors would come from this location. Germany. In the Palatinate Valley area, that area of Germany, southern Germany, you got a geography, think in your mind, Germany and Switzerland, they're, they're close. There was a lot going back and forth between the lines, but Germany, Switzerland, and the Netherlands. And Germany kind of started a little before Switzerland. And how many of you ever heard of Wilhelm Rublin? Have you ever heard of him? He's was a German philosopher, thinker, and a priest. But he became a pastor in Basel, Germany, in 1521. And he was known, kind of like Ulrich Zwingli, as a Bible-preaching priest. And so he would preach out of the Bible, and he was educating his flock. These are the things that the Bible is saying. And out of that, he started realizing, hmm, we're not doing this right. And he left, he, he, was, he preached reform, and he was ultimately expelled in 1522. But he went back and forth to Zurich because around that same time was some of these others coming up in Switzerland. But Wilhelm Rublin baptized two people that were very well known in the German Reformation of the Anabaptist circles, and that was Balthasar Hubmeier, I don't know if how many of you have ever heard of him, and another one that we've all heard of is Michael Sattler. He baptized both of those men. They, would, they came to him hearing his preaching. They, they had Bible studies with him. And they started realizing where they erred in their Christian world, in their life. And they needed to be Christians. And so he actually baptized both of those men. He himself, though, actually kind of left the Anabaptist faith, if you will, in his later years. Kind of became disillusioned and... Um, wouldn't have forsaken it, but he just had a lot of questions about it, and he ultimately uh, went back into the Reformed circles. Um, and that's not much is known about his, his end. Um, there's a couple of references of some discourse and some letters back and forth to Ulrich Zwingli's little underling replacement pastor that came on in later years, and that's just about it. But he was kind of lost to history. But his influence in the German area, uh, in the Germany cities that had Anabaptist movements was very pronounced because Balthasar Hubmeier and Michael Sattler both started crossing the line into Switzerland, encouraging those churches, working back and forth. And there's something that each of these men that we'll look at, whether it be Conrad Greville and Felix Mons, Michael Sattler, they all had one thing in common. And it goes back to, like I said in the beginning, they got into the Bible and they started reading and they realized where in their life they erred, and definitely in the church's life it had been erring for a long time. And they believed in what's called sola scriptura, and that's basically Latin for scripture only, solely. So a lot of denominations today would have prima scriptura, and that's the idea that scripture has preeminency, but you know you can compare it with commentators, other extra-biblical books from the Apocrypha, but I would hope all of us would have sola scriptura, that the scripture is the final authority. Whatever we read, whatever we hear, it comes under the glare of God's word. And that's what these men were realizing. It doesn't matter what the priests, the pope, 
it didn't line up. So something's wrong. And if God is way up here and we believe that, and his word is our revelation to humanity, then we might want to consider his word above the priest. And that's what was happening. And a lot of these men started realizing that, which led to the infant baptism, the, the mass. Um, in later years, it became issues of the nonconformity with what do you do with members that aren't really wanting to be in the church. Um, they want the benefits, but they don't want to live the life. They were actually, there was a lot of people in that time frame, they were called Hoftaubers, meaning half Baptists um, in Germany. And that's, that's sad, but that still goes on today. There's a lot of people that like the benefits of a church, and, but they don't want to put the work in. And so there was a lot of things at play in the early 1500s. Namely, it was a renaissance, if you will, of knowledge that came from having the Bible printed in everyday language. Um, real quick, just for a few minutes, um, Michael Sattler also, um, in 1527, there was a group of churches, and this was after the, the baptism of Felix Mons, and we'll get to that in, in Switzerland, but Michael Sattler, in Germany at least, he presided over a group in the little town of Schleitheim. Now, does that sound familiar? Okay. What, what did Michael Sattler, and he's believed to have wrote this, along with some help from some other brethren, and they compiled this, and they presented it to this body of, of brethren, ordained men, that came concerned because we, we want to have a pure church. And we've got, well, around this time, how many of you have ever heard of Melchior Hoffman? The Munsterites? Those radicals out there? They were classed as Anabaptists. And so society looked at the Munsterites and all that that was going to be going on yet. It hadn't happened, but Melchior Hoffman and his disciples were out there doing that kind of preaching. There's a lot of false teaching. So what is this church supposed to be? We realize the Catholic Church has erred, and reform from the inside is just not working. So what are we going to do? And so they came together, and that's what we know today. And there's the other one from the Netherlands, the Dortrecht Confession of Faith. But we have known today is what's the Schleitheim Confession of Faith. And that had seven main principles. And that was the baptism, that it is believer's baptism. Now, none of us as young parents, or even you as older parents, I don't hope or think that you would have considered baptizing your baby. Now, there's some of our circles of churches, they do baby dedications, things like that. I don't have a problem with that, um, but an actual baby baptism that you would go to the priest and you, and I forget the Latin term, my family on my mom's side is Catholic, and so it's kind of neat to uh, go through some of this history and, and some of the different things. Um, so I was, I was abused, maybe not me, but by being associated with you, I can claim abuse status from the Catholics. So, because I didn't. Those of you that don't know me very well, I didn't grow up in a Mennonite church, but my name would give that away. So, But Michael Sattler, he presided over the Schleitheim Confession, and he had those seven things that he wrote down, and they compared it, and they said, yes, these are things that are worth staking our life on as believers. And that's the baptism. It is a believer's baptism. It's not infants. They can't confess Christ as Lord and repent of their sins. So believer's baptism. What's some other things? that you would think, or if you read the Schleitheim Confession, what are things that were important that they, you know what, that is 
an ordinance, if you will, or something important? Okay, the sword. Basically, we are not going to bear the sword or be involved in any type of military or resistant type of, of attitude towards governments, towards enemies. We're not going to carry a sword or be involved in the military or the governments. It kind of had a twofold thing there. It was not just military service, but also abstaining from that type of environment. Okay? What else? Two. We're a third of the way there. Close. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. If this was a game show, I'd give you that. I'd give you a half point. Uh, um, it, that would kind of be a twofold thing between the separation from evil and then pastors. They understood that there is evil in this world and we need to maintain a, a, a wall between the world and Satan's kingdom and God and his people. That there's separation from evil. And pastors. That we recognize that men of God are going to come from the flock, be ordained to lead out. And there's a role for leaders in the church. It's not just this kumbaya, let's all get together and party. That there is actually leadership in the church and that's ordained of God. And it, it's, it's apostolic. It is in the Bible and examples of that leadership. And the caveat to that was, when a leader is killed, another one is going to be in its place. They understood, hey, we're in a time where we're being persecuted. So when a leader is arrested and he is killed, there needs to be another one right in its place. And so that, that line of succession, if you will, of, of leadership in the church, of guides to the flock, if you will. Two more. No, three more. The ban, that was one that was discussed. Along with the separation from evil, that has its own connotation, but the ban. When you have someone in church that is, for lack of a better term, pig-headed, and they are going to do their own way, and they don't want to have any advice or counsel after the third admonition, then you are to be removed. And that is biblical. And they looked at this like, well, this was not being done in the Catholic Church. They could look around like, oh, we know exactly what that person does and that lady does, and that's not godly. And so when there is sin in the church, it needs to be dealt with. If it is not repented from, then the church has the responsibility to say, you know what? We don't want to do this, but for the sake of the purity of the bride of Christ, we have to remove you. And that was the ban. The other thing was communion. It is an emblem of Christ's sacrifice to us, and it is to be practiced. It does not mean that you are taking of the blood and body of Christ, but it is an emblem. And so they wanted to stress that. It is biblical, and it's something that needs done. And then the last thing was oaths, which we would all, today, we would be really big about that. We don't swear. Our language sometimes might need worked on, but we don't swear and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. We don't do that. Um, if you've ever been called to jury duty or for a court thing, courts do allow us as Anabaptist people to, or people with that conviction to say, you know, I affirm um, that I'm going to tell the truth, but I, I won't swear. But those seven things was what built the Schleitheim Confession, which then gave a actual bearing to the Anabaptist church. Until then, it was kind of this splintered movement, if you will. You had Germany, you had Switzerland, you had the Netherlands going on up there at this time with Melchior Hoffman. And, and 
legitimate revival happening there, even though, you know, you all know Ravi Zachariah, and he was found out to be a not-so-great guy. But does that undermine the things that God used him to do in the church? I don't think it does. Was he wrong in his life? Yeah. But there were people that legitimately became saved from hearing his preaching. I don't think that undermines that. And we'll talk about Melchior Hoffman, but Melchior Hoffman was not a great guy. But he was preaching salvation in, in his early days before he got radical, actually radical. But what was going on then was that you had these three different movements and society looked on, just like they do today in Anabaptist churches or conservative evangelical churches, oh, you're one of them. Society had a picture of what an Anabaptist was, and it was not always pleasant. And the Anabaptist people at the time, they realized, you know what, according to Scripture, there needs to be a, a model of what this church is. We want to be a biblical church. And that term, biblicist, is still used today. Um, we are biblicists. We look at Scripture. We don't try to explain it away, but, ooh, okay, what do I need to change in my life to, to match what Scripture is saying? And the, out of that came those seven principles of the Schleitheim Confession that, to give a picture of what this church is. It's not, and there was a lot of rumors going around, just like in the early church, of, well, these people are this, and they're this. And, no, actually, we are, and now they could say, this is what we believe. We wanted to reform the Catholic Church. We wanted to be there with Ulrich Zwingli. But it was not going down a biblical road, at least in its ending. At the beginning it was. But Michael Sattler presided over that. Um, Michael Sattler was... Um, he was martyred in 1527, and he was really kind of brutally martyred. Um, he was, they had his tongue cut out, um, so he couldn't talk, he couldn't share, he couldn't, and that was, I think, even when you think of like the stoning of Stephen, that the audience knew there was something different about that man. And they, and you read in Acts where he preached, and they got so mad, what did they do to Stephen? Well, before they stoned him, what did they do? Yeah. It literally says they gnashed, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, they gnashed him with their teeth. That was how animalistic they were, so riled up with anger, that they were literally just chomping at the bit, if you will, to kill him. Um, and that's what really what happened with Michael Sattler. They wanted so bad to silence this guy. And they, they did. They cut his tongue out. And they, they tore out with hot tongs. They, just, they, they tortured him all the way to where he was burned to the stake. And they were was, they was specifically ordered, the executioners, to burn him to dust. Not just burn at the stake and crispy critter. It was going to be gone. They wanted him gone. And I think in a little way, that was conviction. They understood this guy's preaching something and it's kind of like the Jewish people of the day when Christ came. They, they did not want to hear that truth of salvation, the truth of the gospel. And that was a lot of what happened with the Anabaptist martyrs. Humanity has an ability to create a lot of cruel things to hurt each other. And sadly, we do that in our churches today with our words. But society does it to each other in forms of torture, rack, um, an iron maiden. How many of you have ever heard of an iron maiden? Um, it's basically an iron coffin with nails at strategic spots to torture you and slowly bleed you to death. I mean, who thinks of this stuff? <laughs> but that's what these priests in these Catholic church were trying to do 
not only to make them recant, but also to be a public example of we don't want anybody else doing that. And so Michael Sattler was kind of a, a forerunner to a lot of a, a torture and cruel methods of abuse. Um, the same happened with, now we'll bounce over into Switzerland with Felix Mons. He was, he was the first martyr. Um, but Felix Mons was a very educated guy. He was fluent in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, not only just German, but he was a very fluent, learned priest. And he kind of became friends with Ulrich Zwingli and, and really started, yeah, what this guy's saying is right. But he got disillusioned when Ulrich Zwingli wanted to go by the authorities and was waiting for their call and stuff. Ulrich Zwingli became friends with Conrad Grebel, um, and both of them uh, were in that debate in the Grossmunster Church in Zurich, and then, yes, ultimately then joined the, the, a new movement in 1525 after they were told to, you had to baptize your children. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. The one thing about Felix Mons, he, he used his abilities, his translating abilities, his Latin, his Greek, things like that. He wrote and translated a lot of sermons and texts from scripture to hand out to a lot of people. Basically tract distribution, if you will. Um, to get people to understand what the, not so much what, this is what I believe, but what the Bible's saying. And to get people to understand what it means to be an actual Christian. That you have a confession that you, you made to Christ, not to a priest. You confess your sins, you're moving past that, and you're saved and you're being baptized into a body of believers, not as an infant and doing whatever you want your whole life as long as you go to Mass and ask confession to the priest. The third guy, um, Felix Mons, Conrad Grebel, and what's the other guy's name? He was like the Peter of the group, if you will. George Blarock. Do you know that wasn't his name? It was uh, George Jacob. He was the house of Jacob, so I, I goofed. If we ever had any more children, it's a, I could name a George. But but he, but he became George Blarock because he was very outspoken. And in those meetings, he kind of came wandering into Zurich. He was a priest. He was educated in Leipzig. He had a good education too, but he never finished it. He was kind of this spontaneous... Um, bombastic type of person that's just like, I'm going to go do this. And then he never, he never finished being educated uh, in a seminary. But he did become a priest. He taught himself to uh, different languages. Um, he came to Zurich because he heard of Ulrich Zwingli. And he wanted to hear this, this preacher. Like, this sounds really interesting. And he, in, in different meetings in Ulrich Zwingli's Bible studies, he became known as George Block because he loved wearing a blue coat. And so... Nobody knew this guy because he wasn't from around there. He came to town, and so he'd like, hey, what about that? And it's like, well, you know, the guy in the blue coat, Blarock. And so the name stuck. That's how we know George Blarock, but his real name was George Jacob. Um, and I'm not saying that because I have some pride thing with the name Jacob. I just wanted to point that out. His real name was not Blarock. <laughs> but those three men really formed the backbone of the Swiss brethren in the Anabaptist movement. Um, Felix Mons, well, excuse me, Conrad Grebel, in that, that night when they had a private Bible study in Felix Mann's house, after that decision, um, Conrad Grebel, who would have kind of been the older of the three, with the, or not the older of the three, but more established in the priesthood, he baptized George Blarock because George Blarock, like, like a Peter, like, well, give me that. And 
George Blarock was baptized, then George Blarock got up and immediately started baptizing everybody else in the room. And that is where we have, you know, historians can argue the point, but by and large, that's where we have the beginning of an Anabaptist movement in the Swiss brethren in Switzerland there in Zurich. Um, it did branch back and forth with Germany because they were neighbors. Michael Sattler floated back and forth. Um, they were contemporaries of the day. Um, going to the Netherlands, we talked about Melchior Hoffman. He was a very charismatic preacher. He had a lot of followers, and he preached biblical things. Where he started airing was this idea of apostolic succession and end times return of Christ. He would have felt that you need to make ready and prepare an earthly place for Jesus to come back. And we know that's not scriptural. Yes, Jesus will come back, make a new heaven, a new earth, but he was of the mentality, we have to make a kingdom of God right here. And some of his disciples then, um, for lack of a better term, disciples, but they would have went to Munster, and that's what we know of as the Munster Rebellion and, and all of that shenanigans. But Melchior Hoffman was the brainchild of that movement in the Netherlands. And but out of that, he preached and he taught at some Bible studies where another person we have probably heard of, O.B. Phillips, that he was at those meetings and Melchior Hoffman baptized him. And O.B. and his, and then uh, O.B. actually then baptized his brother Dirk. And they became preachers and were going out, establishing churches, preaching and, and teaching scriptural principles. And one of the men that uh, O.B. actually baptized was Menor Simons in, into the Anabaptist movement. Um, but Obi had a kind of nagging thing in the back of his mind. Am I really a Christian? Because the guy that I listened to preach and the guy that baptized me actually has left the faith. And he's a, he's a heretic. He's a, he's a radical. He's, he's not right. Does that make my salvation null and void? And that nagged at him and nagged at him until he, he left the faith. He just, and, and he, in his later writings, he, would, he bemoaned the fact that he baptized his brother, that he baptized Menor Simons and had nothing to do with Menor Simons um, because of the way Menor stood up and fulfilled that role of a leader in the church when Obi Phillips backed down. Um, Obi Phillips is a kind of a, uh, a Lot's wife, if you will. Like, mm, okay. He started out right. But he let fear and worry and even his, his life choices of who was in his past affect his present. And as Christians, we can't do that. Um, Obi Phillips is a great example of someone that, you know, I may not have always had the best friends around me, but I can't deny when God saved my soul. And that's where we rest in. Obi Phillips, he, was, he lost that. Um, He'd really died a broken, disillusioned man. Um, he basically became a spiritualist, a self-described spiritualist. He didn't really have anything to do with church anymore. Yeah, there's probably almost agnostic, you could say. Yeah, there's, there's something out there. Maybe there's a God. I'm not sure that he cares about my life. That's a sad place to be when you consider where he started. And that's a testament to us today. It doesn't matter what was in our past. It doesn't matter who was in our past. We're accountable to God now. And that's a lesson we can learn from Obi Phillips. Menor Simons called him the Demas of the, of the church. And we all know who Demas was when Paul talked about, Demas hath forsaken him, uh, 
what is it about uh, loving this world's goods, I think, more than however the verse goes. But, but Menor Simon's called him his Demas. Oh. But there was a void there after Melchior Hoffman and his shenanigans, Obi Phillips, I just don't want to do this anymore. There was a void in the, in the Dutch Mennonite church, and Menor Simons came in to fill that void. Um, he was actually a, a really interesting character. Um, he was poor, had a really poor upbringing, and he looked on the priesthood as something he could do to get out of, out of life. He looked at all the entrappings, because priests back then took advantage of the church. They, they did. They stole from the offerings. They ate lavishly. They were really well taken care of while everybody else was poor, but they felt they had to give to the church. And so Menor Simons wanted that so he could live a lavish life. Um, he, he did uh, learn Greek and Latin. He went to seminary, became a priest in 1516 into seven, excuse me, 15 into 16. And not much is known about a, about a 10, 11 year period there until 1527. Um, but it was pretty much uneventful. He, he lived out the life he wanted to live. Um, he never read his Bible until later on. And that was because he, he had enough knowledge. If I read my Bible, I might find something in there that challenges me and I might get convicted. So he didn't read his Bible for fear that reading something would change his heart and convict him and he'd have to make, it, make a change. So he decided he's not reading his Bible. Um, which I don't know how that came into, you read some of the men of Simon's writings and, and some of his own testimony, but I'm not sure how that would have came. Like, you were supposed to read scripture every Sunday to the, like, I wonder how that actually came out. Like, did he just read commentaries from Erasmus or whoever? I don't know. Um, but when he really became uneasy and he started studying into transubstantiation, which we talked about, that's the idea that, Jesus' body and blood actually becomes physical when you have communion. And he started really, like, that doesn't sound quite right. And he begot, became uneasy over that. Um, he tried uh, writing to Luther, um, another German reformer of the day, Martin Bucer, and also uh, Heinrich Bullinger was a successor. He was kind of uh, Ulrich Zwingli's trained, uh, or excuse me, Martin Luther's uh, trained uh, assistant, if you will. And he kind of took over when Martin Luther left the scene. But he wrote back and forth. There's, there's uh, discourse back and forth between Menor Simons and some of these German philosophers and preachers trying to get an answer on what is he was thinking. And he was thinking because he got into the Bible. That's where he started realizing, wait a minute, something's not right. And out of that, he, he tried to go to people he thought were spiritual that he could get his answers from. Back to that prima scriptura, like let's go to other people to see what scripture says. And it wasn't ringing true. And that's when Menor Simons became firmly convinced of sola scriptura. What is in scripture matters. And that is the microscope under which we look for everything else. Not the other way around. We don't look at commentaries and say, well, if they line up a scripture, that's good. If not, I'm going with the commentary. We go to the Bible only. And Menor Simons started to realize that. And when that started happening... His exuberance, his excitement started being used, and God used that in a way to build in, in the new church, or, well, not new church, but to reform and to bring about revival. Um, he learned of a, yes, he learned of an Anabaptist. That was the first he ever heard of an Anabaptist, was a beheading that was in their local town of an Anabaptist. 
And he, that's when he got curious, like, who are these Anabaptists? What are they about? Oh, they believe the inerrancy of Scripture and the authority of Scripture. That's kind of what I'm learning. And he really, it hit home when his brother was actually martyred in 1535 for leaving the Catholic Church and becoming Anabaptist. And that's when it really hit home with him. It's like, there's my brother. He was willing to, to leave everything, and I'm still here lavishly accepting all these different things, and I now have the truth, and I know it, and I'm not doing anything about it. And that's when it really changed in 1535. Um, and Menor Simons was actually one of the very few reformers that actually lived a long life without martyrdom. Um, he preached and taught for about 25 years. Um, he was able to grow and teach the church there and really share the gospel with an area that for so many thousands of years almost had not heard the true gospel. They'd heard a diluted, watered-down, controlled version from the Catholic Church, but they didn't actually hear the true gospel. So a couple questions I have. We, we went over, there's five things, if you think of in journalism, or even in a police investigation, there's five things, and they're adverbs. What are they? They all start with W. Mr. Gehring, you're a teacher. Why? Yeah. So we did what? We did who? We've done where. We've done roughly when. But what was the Anabaptist Reformation about? And that's not a rhetorical. I'm, I'm asking. What, what was the, Refor the Anabaptist Reformation? What was that about? Okay, obedience to God's word, yes. What else? And I, I, I want to be careful with this. I'm, I'm a lay member. I've taught at Heritage. I do not in any way, I have worked and, and been around uh, the one preacher down home, my old boss, and, and I, I saw him at his worst when we had church struggles down home. Oh. Preachers get a bad load. And I don't want to come across as some lay member criticizing the preachers, but the second thing the Anabaptist Reformation was about was because of poor leadership in the church. Yes, it was God's word not being taught that needed to be taught, and it was, it was finding out, wait a minute, wait, we need to be in God's word. But the other reason what it was about was abuse of authority and, and improper leadership in the church. Um, two reasons. The Catholic Church, abuse of power for so many years and, and apostate. Second, the, re the magisterial reformers, Ulrich Zwingli, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, some of those others, they, they weren't willing to go all the way because they were afraid of the magistrates. Well, we want to do what the government says, and so we can't do these things. And we need to listen to when they say infant baptism is the best, we need to listen to that. And they looked on and said, we can't live like that. We have, we have scriptural principles. And if we can't adhere to them, then why are we calling ourselves children of Christ? And so, and out of, yes, all of that came from a knowledge, a newfound knowledge of the word of God. So the Reformation, the Anabaptist Reformation, the radical Reformation, came about basically for two things. Because newfound knowledge of scripture and, and the Holy Spirit at work there. And also understanding that, wait a minute, the church has been wrong, and we need to fix it. 
but it was it was so far gone it was hard to fix in the Catholic Church. It was so entrenched after, I mean, for since about the three to four hundreds is really when it went downhill. So you're looking at what, twelve hundred years, give or take, of of a of a system that was so ingrained into the very fabric of countries' governments. Um, it was hard to reform that. And I think that's important to think about when you think about the Anabaptist Reformation. Some people would like to say that. There's an apostolic line. So the Anabaptist Reformation is just one more link in the chain of apostolic succession from Acts. I don't, I don't really feel that way, me personally, um, because you can't really say that it was some new church group. They came out of the existing church. What it does show is that there was revival happening. And who does revival? Can we spontaneously just in ourselves? I need to fix things which this comes to the other part of the who. Who brings about revival? The Holy Spirit. And I think if we do very bad disservice to God, if we do not look at the Anabaptist Reformation and realize, wait a minute, this is not some new church movement. This is a newfound knowledge of what had been lost in God's word. And it was the Holy Spirit convicting and working in those men's hearts. Menor Simons knew that if he got in God's word, he was going to be changed. And when he did, yes, he was changed. When you think of Melchior Hoffman, he was in God's word. When he started leaving God's word, that's when he went to shambles. You look at um, Michael Sattler. We need to base these things off of Scripture. There wasn't just a bunch of men, bishops and whoever, that sat around thinking, well, what can we make rules today for the underlings this week? No, it was literally life and death decisions based on the Word of God, not men's opinions. There was a lot of discussion back and forth in the, in the, the meetings there at Schleitheim of what is, well, wait a minute, this is what I think, but what does Scripture say? And out of that, they have seven principles. Now, as Anabaptists and denominations go, there's other things that we, we analyze and society changes and we didn't have social media and all the clothing standards and things that would have been back in the 1500s. It just wasn't thought of. Um, you had a town crier back then instead of Facebook. But all that is the who and the what. So why did the Anabaptist Reformation happen? So we know, okay, the Holy Spirit was at work. This was an offshoot of God's church that was being revived. People were realizing, wait a minute, okay, God's truth is this. It's not what the priest has been saying for the last 40 years in my life. It's this. But why did all of that happen? And sometimes the why is the biggest detail we forget. We get lost in all the murkiness of who, what, when, where. But why did this happen? And you don't have to answer that, I guess. But I think it's something to think about. Why does revival happen? We, we're looking at it tonight, and I have, when I taught the Mennonite Church History and Doctrine, it was about the first week. So I basically had four days to cram in this type of a 15, 20-year period. And then I'd scoot over a little bit over the Friday and then go into the 1700s. And it's a lot of it's history. And we're never going to learn all of it. And it is, sadly, not everybody likes history. 
It's dates on stones, it's cobwebs, it's dead people. Um, but there is something to learn from that. And I think it's important that, well, let me put it this way. There's a, how many of you ever heard uh, George uh, Hegel? He was a German philosopher. And, but he had, a, he had a quote, and it's something we know today. We've heard this, I'm sure. The only thing we learn from history is that we, we don't learn from history. And another one was uh, George Santayana, uh, George Santayana, what is his name? Santayana, sorry. Um, and his quote, which I, another one I really like, is those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. And we, we know that as well. Those who don't learn from the past are bound to repeat it. It's worded differently, but those who cannot learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And I think it's important when we, we move past the three men in a room being baptized, we move past the Schleidheim Confession, we realize there was a revival happening. That revival was brought about because the Holy Spirit was at work in people's lives to bring about a regeneration of God's church, his bride, to have a relationship with him again, of people that had for many years, and I'm not saying that there wasn't legitimate saved people in the Catholic Church, just like today. Um, but by and large, the church had lost its way. And there had been reforms throughout the centuries, but never to the extent of the Radical Reformation and the Protestant Reformation of the 1500s. And that all came about because of a newfoundness in God's word. And I think the why is to bring about that relationship back to God's church, his bride, to bring back that relationship. Um, you see glimpses of it, if you want to use types and shadows, whatever, okay. I, I view history, we look at the Old Testament and let's condense it to just this history. We look at the Bible and we think, okay, we see where God used the, the ark as a type for Christ, we, we see that. Well, did God suddenly stop doing that at Revelation? Suddenly God stopped using types and shadows and working here to bring about this down the road? I don't think so, me personally. And as a little side note, do you ever think about the fact of the Holocaust? If it wasn't for Nazi Germany and Adolf Hitler, the people of Israel would never have gone back to Israel. Because of that, God brought back his people, his nation of Israel again to their homeland through the work of Britain and America and places. You start to use your imagination a little bit, you see God working in history. And I think if you use that same tool, you see God at work here in the Reformation. We look at it as, oh, that's the founding of our church history. I think it's more than that. And we, we would be very poor in our, in our minds to think that somehow our denomination is any better than anyone else. And I, I, I say that graciously. Not all church denominations are biblically where, where they need to be. But we neither need to start getting arrogant because we have such a rich history, rich history that, oh, well, we're somebody. Um, we're not. But we do have the blessing and the grace that God gave men who were in God's word to stand up and say, something's not right. And I think that's a lesson for us today. We can become complacent. In two years, a year and a half, it's going to be 500 years since the Anabaptist Reformation and that baptism service with those three men. Oh, that's a long time. 500 years. 
have we always been where we needed to be like those men were in those 500 years? There's an ebb and flow. And I think that's really encouraging that when you think back over history, when it does look like the status quo is you know, it's humdrum, it's whatever, God can still come in his word, convict men to bring about change in the body of Christ for the better. It doesn't mean we need to always go around questioning our ministers, but it does mean everybody in a body of Christ, the minister all the way down to the, to the youngest member, can be in God's word and learning from what God wants us to be so that we can be a strong church. Because God knows, and I say that literally, we are in a day and age where every fabric of society, of thought, church, is being pulled and all the strings are being pulled out of the quill. And when we look back at history, history is more than just dates, dead people, tombstones, some ancestors maybe. It is seeing God work in his bride to bring about a pure church to be ready for when his, he comes home, when we go home. And I think that's important to remember. Anabaptist history is, is one little piece of the puzzle of God's church. And look at the impact, quite honestly, a few people had. The one thing I was going to say, um, there was roughly about 5,000 uh, martyrs in that time frame. And that doesn't seem like a lot, but population was a lot less back then too. But almost every little village was touched in that area of Europe, some way or another, with Anabaptist martyrs. And we can look at that today as an example, okay, wait a minute, we have so much more privilege and blessing today. What are we doing to be in God's word, to bring about a strong body of, of Christ? Again, if we don't learn from history, we are bound to repeat its mistakes. It's human nature. We don't look on, like in James, we see our face in a mirror, and we walk away. We're, we're forgetting. The same thing applies with history. History is there for us to learn from. And yeah, it's, it's neat. I like history. I, you know, this particular part of history I enjoy a lot more. But it's there for us to learn the good and the bad. So that we can be in God's word and, and move away a better believer for God in the future. So thank you all. I hope that can be a challenge to you.